Good day, my friends, and welcome to another Black History Moment with Bo. I hope this day finds you healthy and well and anxious to slip into darkness and listen to part two of the Choi Massacre. If you listen to part one, you already know what's going on in Ochoi, Florida, and with the Perry family. Around 50 cars full of Klan members flooded into Ochoi from towns such as Winter Garden, Orlando, and Sanford. The growing militia was more largely populated by outsiders than Ochoi townspeople themselves. Finding only 22-year-old Caritha in the house, a manhunt ensued and Perry was soon arrested. After being taken to Orlando General Hospital for treatment of the gunshot wound to his arm, Perry was released into sheriff custody and taken to the jail in Orlando that night. A lynch mob descended upon the jail just before dawn, to which Sheriff Frank Gordon handed over the keys to Perry's cell. They wasted no time in seizing and beating him. They dragged him through the streets behind a car before arriving at the entrance of Orlando Country Club near Lake Concord, where Judge Shaney's home stood. The crowd strung up the by now near dead victim to a telephone pole along the highway. His hanging body was riddled with bullets, which may have been the actual cause of death. This gruesome scene was left there as a warning both to Shaney and area blacks, with a note saying, this is what we do to niggers who try to vote. Some time later, he was cut down out of respect by black undertaker Edward Stone against the wishes of the KKK, who threatened Stone afterwards. Perry's body was brought to Greenwood Cemetery, south of Orlando, where he was buried in the black section of the graveyard. He remained in an unmarked grave until November 2002, when a movement led by locating his gravesite and adding a headstone to memorialize him. The vengeful lust not yet satisfied, the crowd moved on to the Methodist quarters without a shred of mercy. As mob mentality built, they trounced from one house to another, getting increasingly vicious as they went. They fired guns and torched homes, created panic for the dozens of fleeing families. While some tried to fight back, outmanned and outgunned, it was largely in vain. Throughout the day and into the early morning hours of November the 4th, the vile gang terrorized the northern community.
While some had already escaped into the surrounding countryside, others hunkered down in their homes and barns hoping to avoid the onslaught. Some even hid out in the crawl space under their homes. But as structures were set ablaze, entire families, including pregnant women and children, had to decide whether they would rather burn to death or be shot. Any of them that attempted to flee the flames were dropped by bullets from the hordes surrounding them. A 93-year-old former clan member and Seminole County cattleman confessed with an anguish to a scene he witnessed where eight people were in a house that was firebombed that 1920 election day. They ran out the back of the home to try to escape the flames, but were snagged in chicken wire and were burned alive. All of the Methodist Quarter's 25 homes, the Masonic Lodge, School, and the Ochoa African Methodist Episcopal Church were set ablaze. The eerie glow of memories and properties faded to ashes lit up the night sky. Screams and gunshots rang out, and the smell of smoke and death poisoned the air. Such was the backdrop for the hundreds of blacks as they escaped northward toward Opaka or west toward Crown Point. They survived by hiding out in the swamps and groves surrounding Ochoa to avoid certain death. Almost all would never again return to their hometown, and those refugees were the lucky ones. Estimates vary widely, but upwards of 56 of them had lost their lives that night. Decades later, the childhood victims still recalled the horrors of that gruesome election day. Armstrong Hightower, the then 13-year-old son of Valentine Hightower, remembered sleeping high in the limbs of an orange tree. Shortly before his death in 2001, he recollected that he wasn't sure if he was more afraid of being discovered by the clan or wildcats that roamed the nighttime wilderness of rural central Florida. His family ended up relocating to Plymouth, just south of Mount Dora. Coretha Perry Caldwell who escaped with her mom and brothers to Tampa, was asked years later if she had ever been back to Achoy. She replied, No, God, I don't ever want to see it, not even on a map. Mose Norman never returned to Florida. After visiting with friends in Opaka and Stuckey on November the 3rd and the 4th, 1920, he left town for New York City with his wife, where he lived out the rest of his life until his death in 1949. While the Baptist Quarter homes were largely spared that November 3rd, its church was also reduced to char, according to records. 
residents of that community were essentially given an ultimatum, forfeit your property and leave or suffer the same fate. After having witnessed the bloody evening faced by their friends and relatives to the north, the choice was obvious. For nearly a week after the incident, KKK troops set up an embargo around the town. No one was permitted to enter or leave without their permission. Specifically, they sought to keep the now homeless blacks from entering Orlando to the east and Winter Garden to the west. A third of Ohoshi's black population who owned their own land were never able to return to their properties. Those who were offered any compensation at all were forced to sell their land for pennies on the dollar. Hightower, for example, was paid only $10 for a 37-acre tract of pine land on Ochoe Road that the family intended to use for manufacturing turpentine. Within weeks of the incident, only two blacks remained in town, and by the 1930 census, there were none. In fact, not a single African American dared live in Ochoi until 1978. The city didn't hire its first black worker until 1986. And for 18 years following the 1920 massacre, not a single black vote was cast in all of Orange County. And they weren't through then. Until at least 1960, there was a sign posted at the town line that said, Dogs and Negroes Not Welcome. And even up into the 1990, there was a common bit of wisdom passed down among black families not to be caught in Ochoi after sundown. Ochoi today is a modern integrated city with around 40,000 people, 15% African Americans. But the ghost of the past cast a long shadow. The descendants of longtime residents shy away from discussing the shameful history and prefer to pretend the horrific events of 90 years ago never happened at all. While many locals would like to see the whole thing finally put to rest, it is a part of our shared local history. It is part of what makes up our racial identities and subconsciously how we see our place in the world. We must understand and embrace even in the darkness of these collective memories, for even though we have surely evolved as a society, there is still a lot of progress to be made. Such hatred and hurt still lives in our DNA. Let the healing and development as a civilized and compassionate community continue to evolve, and let us be sure that we never let down our guard against bigotry, fear, and the hatred, least history will repeat itself. 
So, my friends, what do you think? Who owns those properties in a choy? Where is the purchase record of them? Yet the question goes on and on. Why can't we get over it? As African Americans, we are forced to spend our entire lives in battle mode. That music tells me that it is that time again. Until next time, my friends, it has been Bo's honor. <laughs>